Your money can do more. Brought to you by Stanlib. Invest for more certainty, more returns, and more impact. Stanlib. Imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. Go big or go home. That used to be the prevailing thinking when it comes to the design of the South African economy. Big industry, big players. Whether it was the state or the private sector, from mining to manufacturing, chemicals, agriculture and textiles. But times are a-changing. So can this economy bet on the little guy, the small, medium and micro enterprise? Could this be the sector that's the catalyst for the growth and employment opportunities we so desperately need? In South Africa, this is not a space for the faint-hearted. We have one of the highest failure rates for SMMEs, with five out of every seven of these businesses failing within the first year. The main stumbling block? Access to funding. All major studies indicate that SMME that gets government funding is a very clear exception. With government hard-pressed on all sides in the midst of a period of sustained economic decline, the role of business in building a vibrant, transforming and growing South African economy has never been more critical. Yet it is already being predicted that small businesses will be the cornerstone for the emergence from our current economic position. So how can the SMME sector be a game changer? Welcome to our sixth episode of the Standlib Your Money Can Do More podcast. My name is Bongani Bingwa. The six-part podcast aims to promote the idea that there are many ways to invest, whether the investor is aiming for more certainty, more return, or more impact. As always, my co-host is Standlib's chief economist, Kevin Lings. Kevin, just how tough is it to run a small business in South Africa? Hi, Bungani. I think it's incredibly tough. Part of that just relates to the economic environment, right? So if you've got a low growth environment and that low growth persists for a number of years, then every single year is a challenge. And and for small business, they just don't have the financial resources. They don't have the balance sheet. They don't have the, the base to keep drawing on to try and stay in business from one year to the next. If you contrast that with, say, a big business that has been well established for many years, they tend to have some cash in reserves. They've got access to credit. And if they go through one or two tough years, then they can obviously draw on that in order to see them through the next couple of years. And then hopefully things pick up. Small business just doesn't have that. On top of it, you've obviously got all of the complexity around regulation in South Africa. And we know from studies around things like the ease of doing business that South Africa is is prone to excess regulation. And when small business has to deal with regulation, it becomes too complex and it becomes too expensive. I know that big business, for example, would be employing specialists to look at labor legislation, to look at tax legislation, to look at a myriad of things that big business needs to know about. But that same regulation applies to small business. They can't employ a tax expert, a labor expert. So they're constantly kind of getting themselves into trouble. They're constantly don't always know what the regulations are. I think many of them break the law without knowing that because they simply don't know what the rules are. And obviously the rules together with the low growth environment makes it really tough. Does that suggest then we don't fully understand the critical role small businesses can play that we're stuck
stuck in a go big or go home paradigm? Well, I think we understand the importance of small business, but the system feels to me like it's been designed around big business. Even even when we, we have net lag or some sort of negotiation, it's always big business sitting with labor and government. It doesn't really seem to have a room for small business. So I think we understand the importance, but the system isn't designed really to try and promote small business as much as it should. And there's no doubt that if we freed up small business in terms of some of the regulation and direct support, then clearly that element would do a hell of a lot better. But I don't think the system's designed to achieve that right now. Well, today's special guest is a real coup de grace, an advisor to three presidents, a consultant to international organizations, ratings agencies, and emerging market fund managers, published more than 200 academic journal articles, book chapters, and working papers, is Professor of Economics and Director of the Development Policy Research Unit at the University of Cape Town. Welcome to our series, Harun Borat. Thanks very much, Wangani. Happy to be here. So, are we starting off from the correct premise, the future of the SMME, how critical a role can they play in reviving our prospects? I mean, that's a great uh, question, Bongani. I mean, let me just step back a little bit because I think we have what I would call an initial conditions problem. Well, I'll give you two sets of statistics. We all know that we have one of the highest unemployment rates in the world, right? But what we often don't add and use it as a comparator is that at the same time, we have one of the lowest rates of informality. That is people starting survivalist small micro enterprises. We have one of the lowest rates of informality in the development world. So something like 20% of the employed are in informal sector employment in South Africa. That compares, for example, with Vietnam, where it's double that, with India, where it's triple that. So we have a real initial conditions problem in the sense that individuals are not appropriately finding their way into low barriers to entry employment in survivalist microenterprises. And we can come back to that. The second big challenge, and here perhaps slightly more similar to other economies, but still a relative outlier, is that if you look at market concentration, a little bit of what Kevin has alluded to, you've got a highly concentrated economy. If we just take manufacturing, if you run across all the manufacturing subsectors from food and beverages through to clothing, through to plastic products, basic chemicals, the market share of the top 5% of firms is over 75%. So that very few firms control over three quarters of the market. So effectively, you've taken the oxygen out of even formal small and medium enterprises in terms of being able to operate. What that does is it disables us from pursuing a growth trajectory that's both going to generate jobs, but also allow for what I would argue innovation, lower cost kind of doing business in our economy. And and I think that's one of the core reasons we're sitting at the sort of 1% to 2% growth range. That comparative question is a very interesting one for me because I can throw some uh, other stats your way. In OECD countries, over 95% of enterprises are SME accounting for between 60 to 70% of the working population. We buck that trend because as many as 56% of jobs in South Africa are created by the thousand largest employers. And that also includes government. 
Exactly, exactly, Wangani. So what we've effectively done is we've got a path dependency, right? So the only way we know how to do business, and it's not sort of an anti-big business. I mean, we're not in that game. It's just the only way and the path we're on, the path dependency we have is to seek growth nodes through existing enterprises, and they tend to be large enterprises. And I think we've got to find ways in which, and I think they are, I mean, again, Kevin was alluding to it, there are ways in which we can turn the dial a little bit to give more economic oxygen to small and medium enterprises. And I must emphasize across the size and let's call it formality range. So if you want to create jobs for the unemployed, one of the lowest cost ways in terms of access to a job is through the informal sector. And that's true throughout the developing world. So if you take one of the OECD countries would be Mexico. You take Vietnam, you take India. Most of the open unemployment is suppressed because people are in these smaller uh, micro enterprises. If you go across the distribution to more formal enterprises, that's, I think, where you're starting to get to a case where you can think of registered firms that are taxpaying firms. Perhaps we need more innovative policy solutions, like I would argue an expanded wage subsidy or involvement in EPZs and so on. So are we trying to reinvent the wheel? If we think about the informal sector and its size in South Africa, it might be considerable, but are we creative enough about bringing them into the fold? So I don't think we are. I mean, I think that's partly also our model of development in that part of the distribution of firms uh, in terms of size class. I think our model of development there is wrong. I think our model of development, as we know, is get rid of the informal sector, keep them away from the cities. And, you know, we, we have strong visual images of that. That's the wrong way to think about this, right? I always tell my students that, you know, if you look out of the parking lot at my building here at UCT, there's only cars. And then they all laugh. And I say, well, if you're in India or if you're in Brazil or if you're in Paraguay, that parking lot would be teeming with informal sector operators. So we have a model of development that wants to discourage, discourage survivalists from actually selling their wares. We are discomforted by this as South Africans. But I think for me, it's thinking about how local government regulations can be reoriented towards opening up areas for greater participation of survivalists and micro-enterprises. Kevin, the majority of South African small businesses that are formalized generate revenue of less than 200,000 rand annually. Nearly half of those SMMEs employ two to five employees. Is that ideal? It's not surprising, but it's not ideal, obviously, because those numbers would suggest that those businesses are fairly fragile, right? And so they're really in survival mode most of the time. They're just trying to hold on. And invariably, within pretty much a year or two, they'll fail and then we'll have somebody else try and they'll fail. And and while that's not unique in the world, many countries have this type of failure rate where people try something that's not successful and, and you move on. We are seem unable to move these small enterprises into something more substantial, kind of this transition from a startup into something small, into something medium. And therefore, that entity then starts to employ many more people. It's contributing, however, lot more to the tax base. And from there, it probably makes a more significant contribution to the economy. And becomes intergenerational, right? 100%. So this idea of family owned is critical. We know around the world that family business can be a very strong success story. And there are good reasons for that. But you want to make sure that 
a significant number of these startup businesses are able to make that transition so that you don't end up with a kind of two-tier system, these very fragile small business, startup business, and then, as Arun said, a grouping of very big business that kind of dominate the landscape. We tend to miss that middle ground substantially. And, and I know that when we look at other countries, that middle ground is absolutely critical for employment, for innovation, for a whole range of dynamics, including competition. And you can't expect that startup guy, that guy who's generating 200000 a year, he's not competition to the big business. So who's competition to the big business? It's the guy that's the dynamic mid-sized business that can be more creative, more flexible, less bureaucratic than the big business. And then he challenges the big business very successfully. We lack that in South Africa. Arun, in my introduction, I've talked about access to funding as a major stumbling block. Only 6% of SMME owners indicate that they received funding. And that would be government grants, the Department of Trade and Industry and the National Youth Development Agency. Is there a role for the state to play in helping these businesses get off the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, if one thinks of, let's call it the transition rate from medium to large, or in fact, even again, just the the pure share of medium businesses we have, as I've indicated across sectors, it's far too small. So then you've got to ask, what is it in terms of complementary measures from the state that one could be looking towards in terms of increasing? this transition rate from medium to large, or at least just maintaining the success rate of medium-sized businesses. Now, credit is one, Bongani, but we always tend to go towards credit. And I think it's important, but I think one does need to look at and it's, it's a little bit of a swear word in the current environment, but the cost of doing business. I know the survey has been criticized heavily, but the individual indicators in the cost of doing business are really, really important. And they do then, out of that survey, they do then indicate where challenges are faced by medium enterprises. They're things such as infrastructure, right? Whether it's the cost of having to provide a generator because of unpredictable energy or even the cost of that energy, uh, and now, of course, in municipalities, that's gone on to include water and potholes. And so the fact that you don't have high quality, predictable infrastructure is a major constraint. And why is it more of a constraint? That's the key thing. It's relatively more of a constraint for medium enterprises because the cost of purchasing a generator is a much bigger deal for a medium enterprise relative to a large. And one can run through Bungani a series of those constraints or costs of doing business that are uh, much larger or relatively larger for small small and medium enterprises, things such as security, right? Security is a massive challenge for a number of these businesses. I could go on and on about for micro enterprises in particular, where we want to see some sort of enabling environment about the fact that licensing and permit procedures are far too laborious and detailed. I think Kevin mentioned this in passing at the beginning. The fact that you've got zoning laws that are not amenable to micro enterprises operating where they want to um, operate. There's also access to markets and the role that the public sector can play in providing access access to markets and giving preference to medium enterprises. Final two points, again, 
Can we find ways to support the cost structure of businesses? That could be something like wage subsidies uh, or in its current form, the employment tax incentive, or indeed through EPZs where government picks up the tab for some of the costs of businesses. But I think the broader point is let's think of policy proposals and targeted policy interventions that are biased towards small and medium enterprises. For me, that is absolutely critical to unlock growth, actually. Kevin, where can the private sector play in this space as far as funding is concerned? Many will say uh, they've had to borrow from friends, perhaps even family. And, you know, there are, of course, business incubators and maybe even the big banks. But is the private sector being creative enough about the opportunities that may lie in this space? So unfortunately not. I'd be actually quite critical of the lack of funding from within the private sector. There is a tendency within the established institutions, so take the banks. If you look at their structure, their process, their credit approval, they are geared up to deal with existing formal business. And a lot of that credit process does require that the business has some form of security in order to gain additional finance. And almost by definition, the the startup guy doesn't have that security. And what he's looking for is a partner. He's looking for somebody who can help him in terms of not just providing him with finance, but also some guidance, some expertise, some technical skills. And the system, the banking system, doesn't gear itself up to do that. And if you look outside of the banking system, there's certainly from our perspective not enough being done. Now, the government, yes, they provide certain areas of finance, but there's always a need for more here. And I think there's also has to be an understanding, if we're going to make this work, is that not everybody who is going to get into a successful business can tick all of the boxes in terms of background, education, skills with computer, having a a decent amount of security, having a certain amount of cash, etc., All of these things generally are lacking and still lacking in this country. So if we're going to make this work, we've got to be willing to bet on ourselves. We've got to be willing to put capital at risk, truly at risk. And we've got to know that a certain amount of that capital will fail, but it's worth it anyway. Even if only 10% is successful, you've got to start somewhere. And so it does suggest that where the private sector gets involved, there needs to be more of an element of I'm willing to put capital at risk. Coming up later in this podcast. I'm arguing something slightly different is I think the whole bunch of these highly competitive, ready to launch small and medium enterprises across a range of sectors. And that's where capital needs to move. They won't all be super successful, but I think that's the art of the asset management choice, right? Is to kick the tires and figure out which of these next, let's say, global winners that we could be um, supporting. Lately, we've all become more aware of our impact on our country. You're not the only one who wants to make a difference. Your money would also like to help eradicate poverty, fuel inclusive growth and protect the environment. Your money can do more with Stanlib's Kanisa Impact Investment Fund. Invest with more impact at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib, imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. I suppose if I segue into what you were saying earlier, Haroon, about the policy environment, but also formalizing the informal sector, talk to me about improving, say, the township economy. I mean, there are obvious low-hanging fruit there. It could be everything from more retail space to better Wi-Fi. Why is this important for the South African economy? It's a little bit like we've got a detailed policy program and policy design from the post-94 period, everything from the labor regulatory architecture through to 
to um, the Companies Act and so on. It's on the assumption that you've got a listed entity that's got over 50 employees, right? And what do I mean by that? Well, no policy program that I'm aware of is thinking, and this sounds absolutely, you know, blue sky stuff. It doesn't seem to make sense. Is nobody's thinking, for example, in the township economy context of an integrated policy emphasis on reducing crime. Now, you may think, but that's crime. That's it somewhere else. Well, turns out every single survey of informal traders around the country shows that the number one constraint, the number one constraint to doing business is the threat of crime, is the threat of theft, your personal uh, safety and so on. So effectively, if you want to kickstart survivalist enterprises or micro enterprises, if you want to kickstart township economies, you better be thinking about security, right? So first priority, cost of doing business, high security or lack of security. Therefore, fix that. And I think if you run through, for example, the second one, storage facilities, very few small operators in townships have safe, again, it's a crime issue, but they don't even have the infrastructure in terms of storage facilities. Mungani, you're not talking of billions of rands. This, these are small fixes that yeah. can turn the dial on millions of operators around our country. So I think for me, it's a little bit of a mindset change about how we think. And, and I'm not saying forget medium enterprises, and I'm not saying let's not think about large enterprises. The point is segment the size distribution, let's call it micro enterprises, medium, and then the large ones. And then you've got policy programs that you can actually focus on each of those different segments. I think if we don't do that, we're going to come back to this debate about, well, you know, we've got a highly concentrated economy. Well, then we need to figure out policy interventions that target very specific size segments of the economy. I want to, if I may, Bongani, just be a little bit unruly as an academic. That's why you're here. I, <laughs> I want to pose a question to both of you, right? And it's a deliberately provocative question and I don't have a view on it. One idea, if you're thinking about financing, if you're thinking about credit, if you think about the flow of capital to, let's call it a riskier part of the economy, and here I'm not talking informal enterprises. I'm talking that medium segment that are formal, that are registered. Perhaps they startups, but they're innovative, maybe in the digital space. What about changing or looking to the Regulation 28 of the Pension Fund Act? Because the Regulation 28 currently allows for massive capital going to the JSE, and that's effectively foreign exposure. If you think of what dominates the JSE, there's nothing in there which allows us beyond infrastructure, which is capital intensive. There's nothing nothing in the form of capital flows towards this part of the economy. Can't we think of something as innovative and what I would call, well, Schumpeter, the great Austrian economist called creative destruction, right? So you, so you think of something that's a game changer. I don't know. That's an idea. I'd love, I'd love both your views on that. Kevin, I will swat it directly to you. <laughs> Arena, it is actually happening, believe it or not. While Regulation 28 obviously needs to catch up to some of these, what you're finding in the asset management space is that this type of initiative is already being explored. And part of it has to do with the organization wanting to make a difference. Part of it has to do with investors looking to for diversification, looking for alternatives. So there are two areas where money is being channeled in. The one is kind of infrastructure or private-public partnerships. That, I think, is fairly well underway. And 
there's more and more money going in that direction. And in these podcasts, we've spoken quite a lot about that. And then the other area is small business development. And, you know, Stanlib has a particular fund, the Kahnisa Fund, that deals with small business and channels money into promoting small business. And it's something that we are actively trying to grow. And there's a lot of interest from pension funds, from institutional investors to take up that opportunity so that you're not sitting there waiting for regulation, waiting for government, waiting for something to change. You're kind of getting on with it anyway. I suspect part of your thinking, Kevin, was funny you should ask. So let's talk about the Kanisa Fund. Give me some specifics in terms of how it can help the SMME overcome some of the obstacles we've already mentioned. We look at that fund as kind of how much of an impact can we make on South Africa and obviously generate a return. So don't think of the fund as being something that is simply trying to provide a social good on its own. It's not doing that. It's providing a social good, but it's also generating a return. And the challenge for investors is can you do the two together? Can you make an impact on society? Can you start to help with reductions of inequality? Can you start to help with basic things, whether it's to do with employment, help businesses start up, whether it's got to do with helping local townships develop local infrastructure, whatever the nature of it is, are you making an impact on society and are you able to generate a return out of that? And it turns out that you can. And obviously within the bigger South Africa, you have to do a hell of a lot more of these types of funds to see a difference in the macroeconomic numbers. But yes, it's happening. It's not happening enough. And there are more asset managers that we think need to get involved and, and maybe change Regulation 28 ultimately. But there is an element of this already underway. Harun, I suppose the other thing to consider is who should be leading all of these discussions from all the obstacles we have talked about, whether it's regulation, access to funding. There's also even a criticism that there isn't even a common definition of a small, very small or medium business across the various issues they have to contend with, such as laws, regulations, key strategies. So if the very definition is inconsistent because of so much of silo thinking, if you will, Who's going to lead this charge? Yeah, I mean, Bungani, that's a great point. I mean, you know, in, in many ways, even this discussion will indicate, okay, well, if we follow up in each of these interventions, we probably have a convention of institutions and bodies and government departments, right? I think that is difficult, but that's partly, I think, how you, it's almost like a project planning uh, tool, right? I mean, I do think if it was that easy, we would all just march off and go and do it or if there's one department or one person is a lot of coordination required and to some extent I think it does need a sort of central guiding hand if I can call it that and possibly through the presidency and uh, a few to government departments that's possible I, I just wanted to come back to to Kevin's point I think yes to some extent what you've outlined saying Kanisa is exactly where one wants to be thinking about a focus on SMEs if I could just push further and say, do you think that is enough in terms of the current regulatory architecture? So take off our sort of individual has to think like a policymaker. Surely we need something stronger, something which directs not a huge amount, so it doesn't put too much capital at risk, but tries to put some capital towards innovation-based enterprises, those in the digital space. 
those possibly that are outside of the public infrastructure type space, but actually proper private, if I can call it private sector manufacturing SMEs. I mean, is there something more that can be done? I mean, it doesn't, uh, in terms of the regulatory space, forcing capital to move in that direction. Harun, yes, I would agree with that. I think there is more that we can do and more that regulation can do to provide the opportunity because our feedback from various discussions with uh, trustees of pension funds is they looking to put these types of investments in place. And obviously, if the regulation doesn't allow for it, then then it's a stumbling block. And I do think that if you did it on a voluntary basis, you'd be surprised at how much uptake there is. There's a genuine appetite. And by that, I mean directing money into social investments that yield a return, whether that is micro infrastructure, big infrastructure, whether that is helping people start up a small business, whatever the nature of that is, my sense is that we would be surprised at how much money is willing to go into that area without the government having to force it in in terms of setting some sort of overarching regulation or some sort of minimum requirement. And I would prefer that the regulation goes that route. In other words, to open it up, make it feasible, change the rules to say that pension funds can invest in these types of instruments and then allow the asset management industry to develop the appropriate products. Some of them, as I say, have already been developed and they can then be tailored directly for for these pension funds and others may, may join in. But I think you'll be surprised at how much headway is made once you ease up on the regulation. Haroon, in putting all of this together, I'm scratching my head and then I think, oh, goodness me, we have that Department of Small Business Development. I mean, we're talking here about a lack of policy harmony, right? Lots of red tape, lots of confusion, lots of barriers to entry. Isn't part of what they're supposed to do is to look at all of that and be the point guys on this? Yes, Mungani, exactly. So Department of Small Business Development, I mean, we've got a new minister and I think she'll she'll thrive in that portfolio. I think there have been challenges in the past probably because it was seen as a latter-day invention out of the DTI and wasn't quite clear where this department sat. There's the bigger challenge always of any government department uh, that suddenly realizes actually all we can do is coordinate rather than do stuff. So if you take the issue of, uh, let's just say, local government regulation or the crime issue, right, or even the Regulation 28, let's assume, right, that's not really within the function of uh, DSPD, the Department of Small Business Development, to do. So they have to figure out ways to coordinate across other departments. I think it can be done. I think in, in some ways, actually, it's a creative opportunity. So you can tell rather than do, <laughs> and, and you start managing other departments. But, Harun, on the other hand, tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock is running out. The National Development Plan had a goal of small businesses creating 90% of jobs by 2030. That leaves us only with nine years. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, I think. And the funny thing, um, Bongani, is that that 90% is the global average. It's not even as if we'd be uh, doing something out of the ordinary. Uh, I think it's an almost underappreciated fact of a highly skewed economy, right? A highly unequal economy with low growth rates. The sort of what President Becky called the two worlds in one. That's what you get, you know, large dominant enterprises that are highly sophisticated next to almost non-existent SME sector in the comparative sense. But 
but you're right, it's, it's a massive job. And I think there are clear guidelines for what could be done. And certainly we, I think we have a very energized president and I think there will be focus. So I'm hopeful. Kevin, you've already touched on what Kanisa can do. And of course, its whole philosophy is underpinned by, in, by impact investment, right? Impact investing. What do you mean by that? So the impact side of it is about how do you make a difference in society? And, you know, when it comes to investments, there can be a criticism that the investor is just looking at it and saying, well, what's in it for me? How do I generate the best return possible from this? And outside of that, I don't really care, right? And so you then tend to direct a lot of these investments into Amazon or a Google or something like that, where you're just trying to generate this phenomenal return. But we know that you've got to make an impact. You've got to make a difference because it benefits everyone. And there's a groundswell of this type of investment happening. And part of it relates to ESG, worrying about climate change. Part of it relates to South Africa's specific issues like infrastructure. And part of it relates to this massive level of unemployment and this inability to really get small micro enterprise going. And so what you keep asking yourself is, how do we channel some of this money? How do we direct some of this investment into making a difference in the society that we live in. So it's self-serving for South Africa. How do we do that? And can we generate some return for the investor so that the investor feels that they're getting the best of both worlds? It's been for us a phenomenal success story. We obviously would love to see more money flowing into these instruments. And then I think we can make a bigger difference. So that's part of what we're trying to discuss with these podcasts is how do we direct investment flows a little bit away from the traditional, from the equity, from the bonds, from offshore. And that's why in this series, we've spoken about the infrastructure fund and the Kangisa fund, because these are critical instruments for the future. Harun, your thoughts on funds like Kanisa, funds that invest in credit opportunities to make both an investment and a social return. Can they gain traction and can they make a difference in the context of our discussion? Bungani, I think that's true. They can make a massive difference, right? I mean, uh, there's no question for me at a baseline that that's where you can start shifting capital, right? That's where you can start providing support to small and medium enterprises. I would again be a little bit controversial and say, let's just drop the social stuff for now. So we don't need a social return. All we want as a starting point, just to get some buy-in from fund managers and so on, is to say, go sector by sector or sub-sector by sub-sector, whether it's chemicals, whether it's food and beverages, iron and steel. Think of two to three small and medium enterprises that you know are well-run, are poised for sort of uh, export growth and so on. I'm sure we can come up with a list of these 50, 100, 150 in a couple of sectors. That for me is where you can move the dial in terms of moving capital towards those kinds of what I would call potential global competitive firms, right? Then there's a space, I agree, for the crowding in through infrastructure, through utilities that's currently happening in the impact investment side. I'm arguing something slightly different is I think the whole bunch of these highly competitive, ready to launch small and medium enterprises across a range of sectors, and that's where capital needs to move. They won't all be super successful, but I think that's the art of the asset management choice, right? Is to kick the tires and figure out which of these next, let's say, global winners that we could be um, supporting. 
and in a sense, Kevin, that is the boast of the Kanisa Fund, the idea that your money can do more, uh, deliver more consistent and compelling returns. The social benefit, of course, is welcome, but this is still worth investing for its own sake. Oh, yes, without a doubt. So it's not as if we are excluding what uh, Rune's talking about. It's very much part of it. But when we look at the objective of the fund, there is an element of yard to say, are you making a difference or are you just investing for the sake of the investment? And whatever that difference might be, that difference might be you've got a a medium-sized business that has a huge amount of potential, but for whatever reason, they simply can't unlock that potential. And can you invest in that business and and see if you can really lift it in terms of growth and employment, etc.? Absolutely, that's part of it. So, you know, we're saying let's not just focus on the listed, quoted shares on the stock market. Let's look at other businesses and see how we can make a difference to them, whatever their size. It feels to us, though, that there's a huge gap in the micro business and in trying to just get people into the entrepreneur game and provide some sort of uplift also in that sphere. Well, with all those thought-provoking ideas, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Stanlib Your Money Can Do More podcast series, promoting the idea that there are many, many ways to invest, whether you're aiming for more certainty, more return, or more impact. Your money can do more to help grow a more sustainable future, stimulate the job market, and have a real impact on the economy, all the while delivering meaningful growth. Thank you to Harun Bharata, our guest for this episode, and all the experts who have joined us to talk about infrastructure, to talk about international investment, to talk about development, investing in South Africa, and of course, small business. And as always, thank you to my co-pilot, Stanlib's chief economist, Kevin Lings. Certainty, more returns, and more impact. Stanlib, imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider.